What's up, guys? My name is Courtney, and I want to welcome you to the Outpost Community Church Sunday Podcast. We're in the middle of our Matthew series, and it is our prayer that this would encourage you and challenge you with your walk with God. Guys, enjoy your week of worship. Hi, friends. Well, if you could head to your seat, we are going to get going. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles so you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 27. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. If you want to go ahead and stand once you get that, you can open up your phone and do it. You're going to see it on the screen as well. But let's stand. The reason why we do this here uh, is not because we think we're better, not because we're trying to be more holy, is we're just trying to, with our bodies, tell our souls something. And what we're trying to tell our souls is, hey, this word right here, this is something valuable. This is something we should listen to, okay? And you need to know you're an embodied soul. You're not just a body who has a soul. And so those things go together. So we're going to just kind of read that. We're going to read this together. Starting at verse 27, we're going to end at verse 32, okay? This is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. This is Jesus in Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So word of the Lord, you can have a seat. Awesome. So I, I've really tried to be prayerful and thoughtful about how to uh, introduce this, not just teach it, but introduce it. And uh, so I'm going to do the best I can with what I've got. And so I'm going to let you know a couple things. Number one, I'm going to be glued to my notes because the way I speak about these things, I want to speak about uh, correctly. I want to speak about it really well. Now, you go, hey, shouldn't you do that with every, ver every Bible uh, verse or passage? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but today's topic is sensitive because it applies to everyone. Everyone in this room has uh, ha come in contact with these in some way, experienced them in some way. Uh, and, and so I want to be able to say these really well. Also, I messed up. I should have done... One, one week, and the other, a completely different week. So you're getting two sermons in one. You're welcome. So uh, we actually canceled the second service. There's just one service for the entire morning. That's what it's going to be. No, I'm just kidding. So I'm going to be glued to it, and it's not, uh, it's just no, it's not because uh, I don't know what I'm talking about or any of that. I just want to be able to say it well. Okay, do you understand? Uh, so when you see that, it's not typically what I do. It's not typically what I like to do. I like to be able to talk and interact with you. So it's going to feel like, I'm just reading, and you're like, why didn't you just email us this message, and we could have had our morning, but um, it's really, really important. It's really special, okay? So I'm gonna, we're going to dive right in. We're going to talk about two things. We're talk about lust and adultery, which comes from the covetous heart, and we're going to talk about marriage um, as it was from the beginning. We're going to look at divorce, what we call the dismissive heart, because everything that Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount it constantly, he addresses what we look at, which is the external appearance of things. And every time he addresses the external appearance, he pulls back the curtain and shows, hey, there's actually a heart issue behind this, okay? So we're gonna look at that together today. Now, as we go into this, though, I want you to know one thing, so listen. There's not a single person in this room who is not loved by Jesus, no matter what you've done. Every song that we just sang is true for every person in this room. Not just for those who have no sexual sin, and not just for those who've never gotten a divorce, had a divorce, or anything like that. You're safe here. You walked into the great, a great place this morning. Because with the church, you are welcome, you are loved, you are cared for. So we're going to dive into this. But know that. Don't feel like uh, you're a special category today. All right? So let's do this. Lord, I just pray for uh, us as a people, and us in this room. I don't know everybody in here, and I don't know every story but I have a story of sexual sin in my life and I know how you reached through, reached down and you loved me. You've forgiven me of my sin and it wasn't easy and the consequences remained 
but I know you remained right there with me through it all. I pray for my friends in here feeling a light sense of anxiety. I pray that you would guard their hearts from the shame that the devil wants to bring, but stir up in us a conviction of the Holy Spirit. I pray that in Christ's name, amen. All right, guys, so let me, let's look at, we're going to look at lust, the covetous heart, and let's reread what the original commandment was that Jesus quotes here, okay? So he says this in verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, moikeia. So just like last week's command, which was do not murder, this week's command comes directly from the Ten Commandments. The command is to not have sex outside of marriage, okay, or have sex with somebody who is married. It's, uh, it's just adultery. The word is moikeo which is a common Greek word for adultery. Now, that's, that matters. I'm not, you know, I'm not typically slinging around Greek around here, okay? I, don't, I got glasses, but I don't think I'm that smart. And so you'll see why this is important here in a little while, okay? But first, how does Jesus amplify this command to not commit adultery? He says, verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so what does Jesus mean by lustful intent? Like, that's the question we got to ask. Well, Jesus reveals the depth of adulterous sin by pulling back the curtain of adultery, saying, hey, you see this thing out here playing out on the stage, but really behind the scenes, there is a heart issue. As if with every sin that is acted out by a person, it comes down to a broken and sinful heart inside of us. What kind of broken and sinful heart desires or is willing to pursue adultery? It's a covetous heart. You go, that's a weird word. What do I mean by that? Well, a covetous heart refers to a heart or attitude characterized by an excessive desire for something. In this case, a sexual pleasure or intimacy with someone outside of your marriage or outside of marriage. It's a, guys, it's a strong desire to possess something, to have something that belongs to another person, often with the intent of acquiring it uh, by dishonest and unethical means, okay? So the desire for sex can consume a person's thoughts and actions, leading them to prioritize their own desires over the desires of somebody else. I've experienced that. It's incredibly powerful desire. So Jesus reveals, <clears throat> just like he did with the murder and anger, that the fruit of adultery is rooted in a lustful and covetous heart. Something You want something uh, because your de- desire drives you to it, And uh, I think this is exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, okay? I've memorized this. I've had a lot of men memorize this. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. This is what Paul is talking about. A person doesn't just accidentally commit adultery. Adultery is the full manifestation of, of a heart that has built a lifestyle or a paradigm in their mind on a broken foundation of sexual ethics. That's what leads to it. And I I quoted this a couple times last week, and it's, I think, really wise to quote it again today. James says it like this, James 1, 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is, or she is, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is so true. But it brings up a question. Is the desire for sex bad or evil? Is is the desire for sex bad or evil? I should hear a resounding no. Okay? Absolutely not. Sex is a good thing created by a good God for intimacy and procreation between two people who have entered into a lifelong covenant of marriage. Like despite what you've been taught by churches or maybe teachers growing up, Sex isn't bad. Sex is good and awesome and God-glorifying. But its truest goodness can only be truly experienced in a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. You were designed for physical intimacy. You were designed to desire it and experience its blessing and joy and the fruit that comes through it. It is a good thing. You know that? I was literally told as a kid, it's a bad thing. And I found out it's not really as bad as they were saying it was, right? Um, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like a fireplace, okay? I, I have a fireplace. Does anybody else have a fireplace? Anyone ever seen a fireplace? Do you know what a fireplace is? Okay, great. So <clears throat> a fireplace, it's a wonderful thing. 
in that fireplace, I could throw wood in there and I could light something on fire. And, and from that fireplace, it's beautiful. It warms my house, brings comfort to my home. But if I were to take that fire and pull it out of the fireplace, the place it's supposed to be, and I put it in the middle of the living room of my house, what's it going to do? Now, it's going to produce a lot of heat, isn't it? It's going to warm my house. It's going to be hot and fiery and spicy, but it's also going to burn my house to the ground. That is what sex is outside of its proper place. In its proper place, God has designed it to bring warmth and life and joy and encouragement to a household. But if you pull it out of there and put it in its improper place, it will burn your life to the ground. Solomon, who's the wisest man who ever lived, said it like this, Proverbs 6. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? He's saying you're taking this fire in the wrong way. Now, here's the thing. Uh, In this case, all of us would go, absolutely, a man can't do that. Never would recommend that somebody pick up fire and hug it. Not a great idea. But you know what? Our culture absolutely disagrees with that. Absolutely disagrees with it. Overwhelmingly disagrees. In fact, almost everything in our culture is either influenced by or capitalizes on sex to push forward a desired agenda. You notice that? Absolutely everything from music and movies to, I remember at one Super Bowl, there was a commercial and it was two people rolling on the ground kissing and it was a Skechers commercial. They're selling children's shoes. And the way they were selling it is like through sex. I was like, I still don't want to buy those children's shoes. What are we doing here? Maybe you didn't see it. You don't think that's as funny as I thought it was. Solomon says it, it, this isn't wise. He says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And if there's anybody who knows it's Solomon, who had 600 wives, 400 concubines, he realized like this, is, this doesn't do what we think it should do. Guys, sexual sin is massively destructive. It's meant to provide life, but if you use it the wrong way, it could bring death. But Jesus exposes that the death doesn't begin at adultery. It doesn't begin when you just perform this act. It begins when we give our mind and our heart over to looking lustfully. Now, have you guys ever heard this? That the, the eyes are the window to the soul. And what you allow through your eyes influences who you become. Young people, listen to me. You go, ah, what I listen to doesn't affect me. What I look at doesn't affect me. You're just foolish right now. But the reality absolutely does. And that's why Jesus says next, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than that your whole body thrown into hell, Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. But for it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body go to hell. Now listen, guys. Some zealous crazies took this really serious, gouged out their eye, chopped off their right hand. I mean, crazy. But that is not, that's not what Jesus is saying. He is trying to poetically show you how serious this is. He's trying to show us that, guys, because listen, you could chop off your right hand, you could gouge your eyes out, but can you still lust? Absolutely. It's not an eye issue, it's not a hand issue, it's a heart issue. You hear that? So what we do with our hearts is what really matters. And he says, you need to take this serious. You need to cut things off from your life that are going through the window and the doorway of your, uh, of your eyes and ears into your soul to lead you into something that's going to burn your house down. Leads to incredible destruction. Uh, I don't know how long ago. It was like 15 years ago. There's a movie called Fireproof that came out. Anybody remember this movie? Great movie. Uh, of the few Christian movies ever made that are any good, that was a good one. And so Fireproof, basically what it is, it's this firefighter who's struggling with a pornography addiction. And his wife find, finds out. So here's the thing. There, uh, sex was supposed to be something that brought him and his wife together, but his porn addiction was driving them apart. It's creating hurt. You see what's happening? One day he came to realize just the destructiveness of this. And uh, his wife and him had been distanced. And he's sitting at his computer and the temptation is there. And he says, you know what? Enough. And he grabs the computer. You guys remember this scene? And he rips it out of the wall. He goes outside, grabs a bat out of his garage and in his driveway, just starts beating this, this computer with his bat. Just starts meleeing this thing. 
shards and stuff. Because remember back then, computers like had all this plastic on them. <laughs> and so he just like beats it to death and it's flying everywhere. And then he throws it on the trash can and it's sitting at the top. And she comes home in her car and as she's walking by, she sees this computer just demolished right there. A symbol that he said, no more. I am gouging out the eye. I'm cutting off the hand. I'm destroying this. That's what Jesus is saying. It's time. You've got to take this serious. You've got to cut this out. You've got to go to war against it. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus commanded, if, if it's correct, if Jesus is right, it means that we all, every single one of us, either have to or have had to confess this sin. Friends, I don't know who you're sitting next to. They're a sexual sinner. Every person in this room. Because it's a heart issue. And what Jesus is doing is he's revealing and pulling back this, this, the curtain that every one of us has an adulterous heart. We've all done that in our heart. And so everyone in the room instantly loses footing. And not only is that going to be really important for what we talk about next, but guys, it's so important because, guys, when we allow this to be a part of our life, it ruins ourself. It ruins our relationship with God. And man, it can ruin our relationship with one another. Some of you know this for a fact. I know it for a fact. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're inviting in something to come and dwell with you and the Lord when you do this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Guys, sexual sin ruins or hinders your relationship with God. Now, if you go, man, who cares? I don't really matter. That doesn't matter to me. Hey, that's fine. You just don't understand the wonder of having an abiding relationship with God. It is it's wonderful that the Holy Spirit, the God of heaven and earth, dwells inside of sinners, literally, is remarkably amazing. And for those of you in this room who you want that, you want it to be deep, you want it to be rich, you want it to be wide, hey, when you allow that in, you're hindering that growth there. You understand? But your sexual sin doesn't just impact you or your relationship with God, it impacts others. And as that covetous desire grows in you, the damage can be immense. Sexual abuse, rape, incest, homosexuality, gender dysphoria, all of these are the perversions that develop out of a heart that lusts for sex in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. All of them. And as always, the best way to deal with a fracture of sin that it creates in our relationships is to acknowledge it and confess it. Ignoring the impact of your porn addiction serves no one. Denying the impact of sexual sin on you and others is ignorant and it's foolish and it's selfish. Not to mention it prevents you from the full beauty of sex as God designed it. And I've seen this constantly over and over and over in my life and in so many people's lives that our sexual past when we finally get into a situation where we can enjoy sex the right way, it's amazing how what we bring can destroy what we can now are supposed to enjoy. And it prevents it. Hey, I'm raising my hand. Me. It was an absolute wedge in my marriage and prevented us from having good, healthy uh, sexual relation because of what I was bringing mentally and in my heart to this. <laughs> Look, I'm speaking from experience. Now, I'm not scared to say it in front of all of you guys. I know y'all know this. Uh, I'm telling you, out of my love for you and out of my love for Jesus, don't be foolish. It absolutely does impact and affect. Now, our culture is violently opposed to everything I just said. Violently opposed to it. In some places in the United States, it's becoming dangerous for me to even say what I just said. In church, you guys not taking a stance on this will be the reason I go to prison one day is because we're not together going, this is just not right. It's not because we're arrogant, but because we're speaking from experience going, this is not good. This is not right. Let me get back to my notes. Okay. 
They're violently opposed. But don't get distracted by the feelings of superiority that you guys might have. Don't think just because you could have a great argument against transgenders and you could poke holes in the sexual revolution and you could do all that, don't think that somehow that makes you superior and free. Are you looking at God's daughters in an honoring way? Did I lose it? There we go. Are you looking at God's sons in an honoring way? Are you waiting to enjoy sex at its proper time in marriage? Are you looking at pornography? Right now in this room, is that something you're battling? Are you honoring the Lord and your spouse with sex? Are you using sex as a power play in your marriage or something to bring life and joy and peace? Are you holding on to unconfessed sexual sin from your past and letting it destroy and influence your life? Friends, I'm asking these questions not to shame you at all, guys, but to give you space for the Spirit to convict you. I've done these. Me, on the stage in front of you. I'm a sexual sinner, and what I've done is wrong. My porn addiction ruined me and hurt my relationship with God. It hurt my wife, and it fractured my perspective of what healthy, good sex is supposed to look like. I don't deny it. In fact, that's why I'm preaching about this. I've tested the warning of God, and I found them to be true. And I know many of you have as well. But friends, you don't have to hide. You don't have to. And you don't have to live in shame. No sexual sin is outside of the grace of God. None. I've studied the whole Bible, never seen it. What I mean is Jesus' payment for sin, his atoning work wasn't for everything but porn addiction. It wasn't for everything but premarital sex. It wasn't for everything but adultery or homosexuality or rape or pedophilia. Friends, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, he says that all sin is covered. Amen? Now, he may not remove the consequences in this life. But he promises that those consequences will not exist in the next if you put your faith in him. You can be forgiven and set free from the guilt and shame to live in a life of freedom and redemption. Trust me, I am telling you from experience. I've seen it, and I've seen it not just in my life, but in my friends. So for those of you who live in shame and fear of being found out, listen, your heavenly father sees your sin. You can't hide anything from him. And his son paid for that exact sin for you because he loves you. Oh, the overwhelming love of God. They're singing about it downstairs. That's for you. Your children are singing songs that you might hear. And God is trying to speak to you. So what do you need to do? Well, friends, here's, here's four things that I think you need to be able to do. Number one, you need to confess that sin. First, confess it to the Lord. But find a trusted friend that you can confess that sin to another, as James 5.16 says, and where you can find healing. Because God wants to heal you. I promise. He's not looking to rip you off. The second thing you need to do is you need to cut off sources. For some of you guys, what we say, where's my phone? Man, a porn addiction, it's, it's like having an infinite pack of cigarettes right here in your pocket when you just carry one of these things around. I'm so proud of my, my brother's have taken a bat to one of these and grabbed the quote-unquote dumb phone. There's nothing dumb about it. It's the most brilliant thing you've ever done in your life. So proud of you. So proud of you. You got to cut off the sources in your life and you got to create accountability around it, either through covenant eyes or those apps or friends. Have these conversations. Be open, continually open, and do battle. It's not going to happen in a day. It's going to take time because, listen, this thing is deep and it's in our heart. It's something we're rooting out. It's not something we're just trimming away. Hey, and the last thing is you need to surround yourself with godly community who's going to constantly walk with you and ask those hard questions, not because they are legalistic, because they love you. You hear me? And in the same way, you who have suffered sexual sin, Guys, my heart aches for you. Yep, I'm so sorry that you've endured abuse or confusion or ma manipulation by others, people like me. You didn't deserve it, but in Jesus, you have a way through. In Jesus is hope that what you endured is not in vain. 
God is gracious to the sinner and he is compassionate towards the oppressed. He was oppressed for their sin against you and all of your sin against him. And by his wounds, you can be healed. And this life, and as he wipes away every tear in heaven when he wipes all this away, what do you need to do? You need to do four things. If you have experienced the pain of this, number one, you need to confess what you've gone through. You need to find a trusted friend that you can tell about what has happened to you. Somebody who loves Jesus and will remind you of his goodness and grace. Hey, the second thing you need to do is you also need to cut off, not the source of sin, but you need to cut off a source of shame. You need to surrender whatever's happened to you, surrender it to the Lord and give it to him. You trying to control it and redeem it in in and of your own self is not going to work. You're not strong enough. Give it to the Lord and cut off that source of shame. You are not defined by what somebody else has done to you. You are defined by what God has done for you. Next, you need to surround yourself with community as well because the shame that comes from what has happened to you can guide you to do things that you don't want to do. It can lead you to hurt others. So you also need to surround yourself with community. Hey, and the last thing you need to do, guys, listen, I don't care what has happened to you. You must forgive as Christ has forgiven you. You must. You go, ah, I can't do that. That's fine. Enjoy the slavery to your unforgiveness. But I'm begging you to be set free by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Guys, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to break free from sexual sin and find redemption from it as well. And I will tell you guys, it's impossible to do it well without the Holy Spirit and solid, biblical, biblically driven community. I promise the, the counselors in this community are not going to help you. They'll give you a space to talk about it for an hour while you pay them 65 bucks. But nothing will help you like the Holy Spirit and biblically driven community. You need that bad. And the Lord can do the absolute impossible. I promise, and you're going to see it today. All right, guys. This is where, you know, you're, you're on a boat, you're sailing, it's beautiful, and then Greg's up there at the helm, and he just goes, ah, like this, and it just turns, and you fall out of the boat. I'm going to try not to let you fall out. Um, but here's what I'm going to do. We're going to turn into a different subject. These are connected. They're connected Because like I said, every one of us is an adulterous sinner. Every one of us in this room. We're raising them downstairs. It's going to happen. Our sin is going to take hold of our desire and produce death in us. It it does it for all of us. But as we transition to this next bit, talking about divorce and the dismissive heart, I need to set you up as as well as I possibly can. So before we get started, I'm going to be reading this. Okay, let me just do something. Listen. This past bit, if you felt convicted, I want to tell you God's grace is sufficient for you. We're going to have some space to pray and surrender these to the Lord. And you've got already steps to do. I've already told you what you are or what they are. The Lord tells you, man, confess, cut off sources, find community. And uh, man, and and just, I don't remember what I even said. Oh, yeah. Uh, Create accountability, get community. But also, if you've gone through this, cut off the sources of shame, confess what's happened to you, find community, forgive. Guys, I don't want to act like that's just now going to be passed as we move on to the new thing. That is going to be relevant to the end of this message. Okay, so as we go into this, talking about divorce and dismissive heart. Before we get started, I want to set you up for success. First, the previous conversation affects everyone in the room. All of us are affected. We talked about that. Divorce affects almost every single person in this room. Whether you've gotten one, whether your parents have gotten one, or whether your friends have gotten one. My mom has been married three times, my stepdad twice, my real dad three times, my grandmother five times. So as I speak about this, I'm speaking to a group of people uh, that includes my mom. Okay? And this has affected all of us, so I'm going to speak very gently and kindly. So with that in mind, let me start by saying divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It is not. God says in Malachi that he hates divorce, but he says in John 3 that he loves the divorced. The next chapter in John chapter 4, he sits with a Samaritan woman who's been married four times and is living with a man who's not her husband, and he reveals to her, a Samaritan woman who's been through multiple divorces, she's the first to hear about who he really is. He's the Messiah. Okay? He 
loves you dearly. And so does this church. We are going to join God in hating divorce, but you are not a special category of sinner. You are safe here. We love you, and God loves you so much more than we ever could. Amen? Okay. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to speak simply, and I'm going to speak directly, okay? This is not to be insensitive, but what I'm about to share about our position from Outpost Community Church to you is different than what most of you have probably experienced or you're used to hearing, okay? So I'm saying that to you, which means that I'm going to have to be really technical about why I have the position I have and show you why I have that. So some of you are going to fall asleep on me. That's okay. Uh, some of you, I really need you to pay attention. I'm going to try to keep it as interesting and exciting as I possibly can. But it's so important. I'm not trying to make this convoluted and technical to, to wave my hands and distract you. It's actually really simple. But I'm going to have to do a certain things to help you out. And the first thing we need to do is we need to create cr- clarity around this situation. Does that sound good? Because what it typically happens is we create subjectivity about this. Is well, You can feel how, how you want to feel about it, and she can feel how she wants to feel about it, and I can feel how I want to feel about it. But listen, it's okay. God is merciful. That's not what the Bible says. It's far more objective than you can. It's far more objective. And so I wanna do, what I want to do is I want to show you the subjectivity that was creating a big, hot debate in Jesus' day. It all came to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Deuteron- this is what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Okay, the big, hot, dividing line over divorce in the first century sat squarely on what does it mean, some indecency in her? That was the question. What does that mean? There's two schools of thought on this in Jesus' day. The Hillel and the Shammai. Everybody say Hillel? Hillel. Shammai. Shammai. Okay, good job. Okay, these were two popular schools in the first century B.C., the first century A.D., known for their differences on how they interpreted the law, okay? On the issue of divorce, the Hillel school held a relatively liberal stance, allowing a man to divorce his wife for any reason. While the Shammai school held a stricter view, permitting divorce only in the cases of adultery or immodest behavior. Hillel believed that a man could divorce his wife even for trivial reasons, such as burning his food or simply finding her not attractive anymore. How do y'all feel about that, ladies? It's like, you know, I got, kick Hillel into Hillel, you know. In contrast, Shammai believed that divorce was a serious matter and should only be allowed in the cases of serious wrongdoing by the wife. But obviously, what is meant by serious wrongdoing is just as subjective as some indecency. What does that even mean? And so the argument was hotly debated in Jesus' day just as it is now. And this is the dividing line in our whole culture. You see it? Hillel and Shammai. But today I want to show you that Jesus' teaching didn't continue propagating a view that is open for interpretation, but rather made made it very clear, removing subjectivity, which means just opinionated response, with an objective stance, which this is how it is. And it is based squarely on two things, original design and the example of his grace. Let me say that again. It is based squarely on God's original design and the example of his grace. So what did Jesus say? Let's read it again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Have you guys heard this before? Okay, very popular. How does this compare to Mark and Luke? I want to read two other places that say a similar thing. Look for what is missing. Some of you already know. Recounting the same scene I mentioned in Matthew 19, where the Pharisees are sitting before Jesus and they're asking him this question. And they're asking him this question because they're coming out of this hot debate. So they ask, Jesus, what do you think? Can he divorce for any reason? 
Well, in Mark, 9, or in Mark chapter 10, Mark recounts the same scene. Verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Sounds like the last one, right? But something's missing. Let's go to Luke. Luke 16, 18. This is what Luke says. He just throws it right in there. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So what's the difference? What's missing? Say it, be confident. Exception clause, right? Anybody ever heard of the exception clause? The exception clause is what's missing. Most interpret this to mean that divorce, is, so in Matthew, let me read it again. In Matthew, he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, called it the exception clause. And so what most interpreters mean by this is that divorce is permitted, though not encouraged or commanded, in the case of adultery. Is that what it sounds like to you? Just be confident, it's okay, what do you think? Yeah, okay, great. Okay, well, the question then becomes, why did Matthew include this exception while Mark and Luke and Paul did not? Okay, let me read you a really good response to this from a commentator. He says, it seems far more likely that this exception, is uh, its absence from Mark and Luke is due not to their ignorance of it, but to their acceptance of it as something taken for granted. An assumption that they assume that everybody understands that that's just a no-brainer. After all, under the Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death, so nobody would have questioned that marital, marital unfaithfulness was a just ground for divorce. Okay, listen, guys, this is the wildly, widely accepted stance of the evangelical church, and I believe it is a mistake. Okay? I'm saying this with humility but I believe it's a mistake, and let me explain. First, when Paul, Mark, and Luke quote Jesus' teaching in the same way and never mention an exception, you have to be careful about assuming there is an exception. On an important matter like divorce, which in their day holds the lives of women and the sanctity of marriage in its hand, do you think that the writers are going to communicate on an assumption? I do not think so. So the question is, well, okay, Greg, but why it then is it there? Well, I believe there's a very understandable reason, and it's find, found primarily in another thing that Matthew writes that no other New Testament author talks about. But before we go there, we got to talk about two words, pornea and moikeia. Everyone say pornea. Do you know where we get pornography from, from now? Yeah, there you go. You got it. So Jesus says in there, so we're going to come back to this other thing that Matthew says, but first let's define something. Again, keep with me. Don't freak out. Don't go to sleep. That's what it said. Jesus says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality here is pornea. Why does Matthew use the word pornea instead of the word morkeia, which means adultery? Okay, almost all commentators seem to make the simple assumption, again, an assumption on top of another assumption, that pornea means adultery in this case. Adultery meaning uh, you're married and you have sex with another. But commonly, moikeia is the direct word for that. Pornea is something far more broad. So even though now and then pornea can, can encompass adultery, is that what Matthew is trying to say? Well, what you have to ask yourself then is this. Does Matthew define pornea the same way as adultery? Or does he use them differently? Well, let me show you. If you go over to Matthew 15, 19, Matthew's going to show you that he defines them differently. He defines them differently. Matthew 15, 19. He's going to, listen, he puts moikeia and pornea back to back. Why would he do that if he doesn't think they're different? Look what it says. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. When it says adultery right there, it's moikia. And then comma, pornea. So clearly, 
the primary contextual evidence for Matthew's usage is that he conceives of pornea as something different than adultery. Could this mean then that Matthew conceives of pornea in its normal sense of fornication rather than adultery? What's fornication versus adultery? Adultery is I'm married, I have sex with another. Fornication is I'm not married, but I'm having sex. That's the, that's the main difference. And that's how it's typically defined. Okay, so then the question becomes this. Is there any other place in the New Testament where we see that people talk about pornea this way? The answer is yes. John chapter eight. So in John chapter eight, starting at verse 39, it's gonna be on the screen, look at this. It says they, the Pharisees again, are squared off against Jesus. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has just told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father, what your father did. Later he's going to call them sons of Satan. They said to him, we were not born of pornea. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. So here's the religious leaders. They say that they are sons of Abraham, not another man. Instead of saying we are not sons of adultery, they say we are not sons of pornea, fornication. The clue in this is the fact that Jesus is accused of being a child of fornication. You think about that? He's accused of being a child of fornication. When I say that, what does it remind you of? It reminds you of the one place where ma- that uh, in your New Testament that describes the uh, birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. Why does this matter? Go to Matthew chapter one. I'll show you. Go all the way over there. You got to see this. It's in your own Bible. The other thing that Matthew says that no other gospel writes about is the virgin birth from Joseph's perspective. In verse 18, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, which means engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. But from Joseph's perspective, what does it look like? Pornea. It looks like she got pregnant with somebody else. He's, not, he's probably not thinking it's the Holy Spirit, right? And her husband, they're engaged, and it says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to do what quietly? Say it again. Say it louder. Divorce. To divorce her quietly. So listen. The explanation for why there's an exception in Matthew and nowhere else comes clear when you recognize that Matthew communicates that Joseph was a righteous man when he chose to divorce Mary quietly because of his perception that she had committed sexual morality, fornication. Guys, you gotta understand that betrothal or engagement in Jewish culture is a higher commitment than it is in ours. In Jewish culture, this is a very serious thing between families. To break that is to destroy some family relations. And they would get to sever it, which is what the word divorce in the Greek means, is to separate. To do that was a, to get a divorce with them. You hear that? Over an engagement. And so it's simple. There is no exception here for adultery in marriage. The exception is for those who are betrothed, which is a common practice in the Middle East. If the person you are engaged to has practiced pornea, you are free to divorce the engagement. If you have been joined together in marriage under God, you are to commit to that marriage for life. Even if that partner commits moikeia in the marriage, adultery. Why does this, what does this mean? Why does this matter? Jesus uses the word pornea to refer to fornication, not to adultery. Matthew uses both words, which proves that he understood the difference. Mark and Luke do not mention the exception because they do not mention the planned divorce of Joseph and Mary for perceived fornication. Matthew did, so he included it. What does this accomplish? Well, it accomplishes a lot of things. It makes sense of a lot of things that we're making assumptions about. To me, listen, it makes sense of why Mark, Luke, and Paul don't mention it. 
It makes sense of the use of pornea rather than the common word morkeia. It makes sense of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 when he says, in the beginning it was not so. And what God has brought together, let man not separate. Not to mention God's statement in Malachi when he says, God hates divorce. It also makes sense of the disciples' surprise in Matthew 19 when they say that if this is true, it's better not to marry. And it makes it clear what Jesus is teaching. Whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's what he's saying. Friends, let me go a little further. The only place where I believe divorce is considered, is not considered sin, is in the case of when an unbelieving spouse chooses to divorce a believing spouse. Where do I get that from Scripture? It's 1 Corinthians 7. Okay? 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. First thing you're going to see is that Paul heard the same thing I just heard and that those guys just heard, and he's going to repeat it to you, what his perception is of what Jesus says. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, to the married I give this charge, parentheses, not I but the Lord. What does that mean? It means he's saying the Lord talked about this. He talked specifically about this. And this is what he thinks the Lord said. The wife should not separate, that word is divorce there, from her husband. Here's the proof. For if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. He just reaffirmed what Luke and Mark said and what I believe Matthew's saying and what I believe Jesus is saying. The interpretation is there is no exception. But then he goes a little further, and this is what I mean by an unbelieving spouse from a believing spouse. Look, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. It doesn't mean he's like, I'm just going to come up with my own thing. It's still from the Lord, just not from Jesus. Jesus didn't say this himself. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Stick with that girl. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And he gives an explanation, but let's go to verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, some people in the church, they call this desertion by an unbelieving spouse, which is technically true, but I think that the word desertion is also, it, I've watched the church make it subjective. I think it's simple. If an unbelieving spouse who doesn't believe in God, wants, who doesn't want to follow God's good ways, chooses to pursue divorce, you are free, and I believe you're free to be remarried. Does this mean that the spouse did not sin? No, it just means you did not sin in them choosing a divorce. The only other case where remarriage is clearly okay is if your spouse died. And everybody, everybody agrees on that. There's no, there's no battle on that. So what does this mean and what does this not mean, friends? Let me be really clear. What does this not mean? Listen, it does not mean that you must endure abuse. When we say there is no exception to get out of a marriage, we're not saying you should stay in, a bu in an abusive situation. We would always counsel that you seek safety and separate, but that separation does not mean divorce. It means seeking safety. Proverbs says a wise man sees danger and turns and runs from it. We will sometimes say the woman, we would find a place for her to live or a place for the man and the children to live. We would say, hey, there needs to be a separation to seek safety. But that woman or that man seeks Christ for their spouse and they stay together. It does not mean that adultery is okay. It does not mean that. It's not okay. It hurts deeply. In fact, psychologists say it's one of the things outside of losing a longtime spouse to death, it's one of the hardest things to experience. Losing a spouse, losing a child, and the next is facing adultery in a marriage. It's extremely difficult. Okay? And the third thing is, it does not mean that God can't forgive you. Listen to me. It does not mean that God can't forgive you, and it does not mean that God can't redeem your marriage. You hear me? Now, what does it mean? It means that 
Marriage is a lifelong covenant that is meant to be kept until death do us part. It means that adultery is not a grounds for divorce. Do not, I do not believe that to be true. It means that marriage is a serious commitment, guys, that should be considered carefully. Our big, listen, our biggest problem in the U.S. is not the divorce issue. It's that we never took marriage serious to begin with. It means that we should be careful not to be unequally yoked. Yeah, he may have a lot of money, maybe may a good-looking dude, but does he love Jesus? That's really all that matters. It means that we must learn to show grace and forgiveness just as God has extended us grace and forgiveness. It means this is going to be hard, and it's going to be incredibly hard at times. It means that you will have to rely on God. You have to. You know what this other also reveals? Guys, listen to me. It also reveals God's loving commitment to us. Jesus does not give us an exception for divorce because Jesus never sees an exception for himself to divorce himself from you. And all of your sin is against him, and he says, I will stay with you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're his, and he seals himself to you. There's a reason why in Ephesians 5 and other places he says that he is the groom and you are the bride. He says he loves you and he will never divorce himself from you. In Hebrews he says this, Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The only reason that God divorces himself from a group of people is the same reason why a believing spouse is able to be freely divorced from an unbelieving spouse. And it comes down to this, not believing in God. The only thing that separates you from God is your belief in him. So God is not, hold, is not giving us some special standard. He's holding us to the same standard he shows us. You see this church? It's the exact same standard. That wouldn't make sense that he makes it less than what he's doing for himself. He says, follow me, not follow your heart. But that's hard. That's super hard. So friends, listen. I know that many of you guys are like, man, this, this, that's Greg's opinion. That's Greg's sub subjective opinion. We at Outpost are going to constantly counsel this way because here's the thing. We believe that God can bring redemption even in the worst cases. We've seen it. And so what I want to do is I'm going to invite some friends up. They're going to come up and they're going to share their story with you guys. And they're going to tell you uh, a, their story of what God can do and what he has done. Okay? Will you guys welcome my friends Luke and Ingrid? Can you see over that? Well, we're going to read from this as well because Greg gave us a whole two days to get ready. Um, uh, but uh, typical Greg fashion. Uh, so this is a part of our story um, that wasn't in the outpost stories, if, if any of you guys read our story in there. And uh, that was mainly because there were some conversations that we needed to have with some, some other folks before we kind of put it out in front of everybody. But it is an important part of our story, and um, we truly believe that it, it does shine a light on Christ and what he can do in your marriage. And um, I guess if you guys have any questions or want to talk to us afterwards, you're sure more than welcome to. But I'll let Ingrid kick it off. We're kind of just hitting the high notes and low notes, I guess, so... I don't want to hold it closer. It sounds really loud <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, I was also really nervous about everyone knowing. Um, I have talked about it a lot in women's, women's ministry um, in the equipping courses that I've been teaching. So I've been pretty transparent with it, but in front of all of you is a little bit different. So um, we'll just do a quick recap. Um, Luke and I met in high school, dated young, married when I was 19 and he was 22. We brought a lot of false expectations and baggage into our young relationship. We had three children um, quickly. Isaac, um, when I was 21, Sage joined us 18 months later, and Quinn, surprise, surprise, 14 months later. 
So not only were we young and immature, but we were also raising three babies. We were attending a local church periodically and in a Bible study with some friends of ours. I had a few friends around me that were doing the church thing too. I was trying to be a moral person and be good and make the right decisions. I was comparing myself to others constantly and seeking approval in all of the wrong places. I still slowly started to step away from God and was trying to do everything on my own. I had dealt with a lot of hurt in my life and it was starting to consume me. I started focusing on the negative and really started to pull away from Luke and was really discontent in our relationship. And Luke. <laughs> well, I wasn't always the best husband either. Um, early in our marriage, I, did, I laid a lot on Ingrid in the form of uh, caring for the house or child care, um, and I continued to seek uh, my own time, my own fun, um, my own sin for a long time. Uh, I went back to college. I was a little later in life. Um, we already had a family. And uh, after I finished college, I began a career, and I really let that work take priority almost over almost everything else in my life. Um, along with that came an immense amount of stress and pressure that I dealt with very poorly or uh, not at all. I, I would often come home angry and unreceptive to the needs of Ingrid or the needs of our kids, um, and I definitely wasn't being that Ephesians 5 husband, and I, I wasn't loving her as Christ loves us or loves the church. Instead, I viewed my marriage very selfishly um, and was very frustrated that my needs weren't being met. <laughs> With Luke pulling away and me stepping away, we really started down a dark path in our relationship. It was at this time that I started seeking approval from other men. This sent me down a path of texting and communicating with another man inappropriately inappropriately, which eventually led to an affair. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I really didn't care and was really indifferent to the whole situation, but I knew it was wrong. I loved Luke, but I didn't like him very much at that point. Then something changed. Luke started to show interest in me, asking questions, and for the first time in a long time, he was interested in our relationship. I was really bitter and didn't want to admit to him what I had done. He kept asking questions and really pressed in. So it was uh, December 2015, uh, and I'd been gone for three weeks working in South Dakota. Um, and it was a, felt like a really long stint, and I was pretty eager to get back home when it was done. Um, when I returned, I, I found Ingrid very distant, very bitter, not, not wanting anything to do with me. And I felt the harder I dug in, uh, the more she pulled away. And why wouldn't she? I, I hadn't given her a reason to be understanding or loving me at a lot of the points in our marriage. Um, as she withdrew more and more, my heart broke, and broke more. And I broke down and, and truly, truly prayed for the first time in a long time. Um, and I really began to lay our damaged marriage at the feet of Christ. I, it was one early morning I was driving to Casper uh, for work and uh, just feeling as broken as, as you can imagine. And, and uh, I started praying, and I prayed hard all the way to Casper. Um, I was coming out of Wind River Canyon, and I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> um, <laughs> I prayed and prayed, and I just had this feeling wash over me that I, I can't describe. And um, I just heard God say, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And he just repeated it. It'll be okay. And I knew then that... Um, I had to fight for our marriage, that, uh, still not knowing how much further down or what was going to happen. So I started to feel a tug in my heart to confess to Luke. So on a Friday night late in January, we sat down to talk, and I opened up and confessed to Luke what I'd done. I was expecting him to be angry and yell and walk out, but Luke did the exact opposite. He showed me love, forgiveness, and compassion immediately. We both were broken. Luke opened up about his experience in the truck with God and how he had been praying fervently for God to soften my heart. In that moment of forgiveness and love that Luke was showing me, I felt God tearing down walls that I had built up around my heart. Luke opened his Bible and read me, John 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? 
This they said to test him, that they might have charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his fingers on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, out, go and from now on sin no more. Over the next few days and weeks, we both broke down and talked about everything in our relationship that had caused us pain and hurt. Probably the first time we had truly talked and truly listened to each other. We started to read the Bible together and use biblical counseling tools to aid us on our new walk together with Jesus. I struggled with thoughts that I had lost my salvation, but Luke turned me to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Romans 3, 22 through 24, even the, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, like, like Greg said, too, I, I do remember reading something early on in that, that surviving adultery was very similar to the pain you experience um, when you lose a very close loved one. And, and that was definitely a season that was the hardest I've ever struggled in my life and the most pain I've ever felt. Um, a person can process that pain with or without your spouse. Uh, either way, it has to be processed. And so for me, divorce wasn't wasn't even an option because, uh, well, James two thirteen says, "For judgment without mercy to the one who has shown, or judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over ju judgment." It always made sense to me to heal with anger in the presence of Christ, allowing the Spirit to work miracles in our marriage. <laughs> Through that, we began to rebuild a marriage with each other that became stronger than I think either of us thought was possible. Um, it rebuilt a trust in God that neither of us had ever had before, so maybe not rebuilt, but built. Um, learning to communicate honestly and calmly as a tool that we st still use today. Um, it isn't easy all the time. We're both sinners still. I mean, we both fall short all the time. Um, but we were more and more quick to confess our sins to each other, eager to listen to each other, and most importantly, we are always ready to forgive each other. Uh, James 1, 19 and 20, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So early on, Luke would tell me that God was going to use this someday to to help other people, and I was like, I'm just going to get locked down, and uh, nobody's going to see this, and uh, as I began to really trust God and see how he was transforming us, I too started to see that. Um, I've learned that uh, the more that I lean on God, the more I read his word daily and confess regularly with close fellow believers, the more I want to share. I've experienced more freedom by dragging this sin out and other little sins in my life out into the light and let it, letting others see the transforming power that, ha, that God has even in the darkest moment in our lives. 1 John 1, 8 through 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, friends, uh, guys, listen. The only thing holding us back from making progress in our faith in this war against sin, and friends, me and Paul, all of us will tell you, the war remains after you give your life to Jesus, but the only thing holding us back is belief that God can absolutely transform everything. And so what I want to do is, friends, listen. Some of you in the room, you're hiding, you have sexual sin that you've been hiding. You're keeping it locked down. You're keeping it a secret. And I want to tell you, your loving God is not trying to bring you into shame. He, that, that thing you're feeling right now, 
is him trying to woo you out into a better way. He's trying to pull you in because he loves you. And that, maybe that pain you have in your marriage, the only way you're going to get through that is by looking at the forgiveness that God extends to you and how he loves you and every single piece of you and how he's providing for you a forgiveness and grace towards your spouse and towards others and to those who hurt you and abuse you from when you were young till now so that you could become somebody like Mary Magdala who gets to walk in freedom, like Peter who walks on the waters. You get to become somebody of faith who is set free from the power of sin to walk in newness of life. God wants that for you, church. And, and this is a place where you can be honest and you can be real because God does great things. Lord, as we sit here to worship you, to sing your praise, some of us are singing your praise because we have been set free. We have been redeemed. Every single piece of sin in our life is truly gone and dead in the grave. We rejoice with all the saints, with all the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We love you. I pray that our voices as we sing, as we play this music, I pray, Spirit, that you would press into the hearts of others who are living in fear, who do not want to sing, but they want to hide who do not want to rise up, but Lord, they want to retreat. I pray that you would woo them in, help them see that in you is freedom and redemption in life. God, we give you this morning. We thank you for your word. Lead us into the way of everlasting. In Jesus' name.